Welcome to the Business Choreography Podcast. My name is Michael Johnson, and I'm excited you're here today because we have an incredible guest. I'm so excited to introduce you to Carla Fowler. She is awesome. We've had a chance to get to know each other a little bit, and I'm excited to tell you all about her. Dr. Carla Fowler is an MD, PhD, and an elite executive coach. For the last decade, she has been a secret weapon for scores of CEOs, entrepreneurs, and other senior leaders. Carla's unique approach combines the latest research from performance science with time best practices to help top performers level up and achieve their goals. Guys, you are not going to want to miss it. Stick with us today because you are going to learn a whole lot of amazing things. I can't wait to share with you her journey and her experiences. Let's cue the intro and we'll jump right in. Listen, there's a lot to learn when growing and scaling your business. That's why we created the Business Choreography Podcast, where we talk about choreographing your marketing, operations, and sales into dynamic systems that increase your revenue and your impact. We'll explore solid business principles and discuss all things that make businesses dance to success with clarity. We'll help you figure out where the holes are in your business and what you can do to fix them. Think of us as your official business choreographers, aka your insider growth strategists. Remember, your choreography matters. Welcome to the Business Choreography Podcast. Carla, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Michael. Absolutely. You know, it is one of my great pleasures to be able to meet some incredible people along my journey, and you are no exception. I'm excited to hear about your story. I'm excited to hear about how you got to where you're at today doing uh, some incredible things. And I want to start with the backstory. I want to start with where this all began and kind of dig in a little bit to your journey because I think it's important for our listeners to really understand what the journey was about so that they can kind of find some solace in the fact that, hey, you know, it's all right. You're not alone, you know. Absolutely. Well, and my story definitely uh, is not one of those linear paths. In fact, <laughs> it has a major pivot in the middle. Um, nice. I think for a good chunk of my career, about a decade, I was headed in a pathway towards being an academic physician and was getting my MD and my PhD. And of course, uh, what I have been doing for the past 10 years has been really digging deep into performance science and building an executive coaching practice that really was designed around my own methodology um, to help people and leaders um, use that use that performance science to kind of level up the results they're doing. And um, wow. so the where does it start? <laughs> you know, I there is... There is a story. I think a great way to understand me is actually to go back to sixth grade. And so imagine first couple weeks of sixth grade, you've sh shown up at a new school. It's like a bunch of elementary schools. Lots of new kids have shown up. You know, uh, you're realizing that like your best friend of all of growing up is starting to hang out with kind of a new and cooler crowd. So you're already feeling a little like, ooh, this is, this is bigger and scarier. And, um, and then the kicker, right? Like late on a Friday afternoon, you get a phone call from, uh, from, a, from a guy in your grade, right? And he's like, hey, you know, my buddy Nick, he, he, you know, he wants to go out with you. And then he hangs up. And of course, this is this moment where you're like, like, ah, 
like, actually, I'm okay. I'm okay. There's someone who's like kind of interested, who thinks I'm cool. And this is awesome. And so, you know, Monday morning rolls around and you're like, okay, okay. I need to call Nick. I need to tell him yes. Like that I'll go out with him, you know, whatever that means in sixth grade. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you call him on Monday morning right before school. And he's like, what? And you're like, oh no, oh no, this is really bad. And he's like, I didn't ask you out. And, uh, you know, you put down the phone and your heart is just sinking and you're like, oh, this is all starting off very badly. (laughs) (laughs) And it's that moment. And I don't know if other people had their awkward moments in sixth grade, but it's kind of that period of time where you're trying to figure out, like, how are you going to make it? Uh, like, how are you going to deal with all the social dynamics? Who are you becoming as a person? And what I remember is that it was really sort of that period and beyond when I said, well, I don't know if I'm going to be cool, but it seems like maybe if I could just be really good at things that (laughs) I might, uh, you know, have sort of a place and a belonging and, and a way to get along in the world, or at the very least I I would be capable and, you know, have some survival skills. And so I mean, it's kind of a silly story, but I think we all really have those totally like nerdy, embarrassing moments. And, you know, sometimes they really do set us on a course. And I think that is sort of the beginning of being really interested in understanding how do you go do challenging things? Um, It obviously rapidly graduated beyond this idea of like, oh, I need to be cool, but really became an intellectual interest and not just like one kind of thing like academics, uh, but really like how, how are people good at challenging athletic things? How are you good at thinking about a problem? How are you, um, good and, and, um, kind of showing up in your workplace. And so I, I bring this up because some people have said, wow, you've done a lot of different stuff. But for me, that common thread has always been this interest in, understanding performance and how it works. And can you actually distill it across fields to say, what are kind of the common principles that really help people? So that's, I'll I'll leave it there. And we can certainly talk about more of the twists and turns, but uh, that's, that's a little bit about me and what makes me tick and kind of loops the whole story together. My goodness. (laughs) Where to begin? Okay. So when we talk about this concept of belonging and feeling like you fit in. I want to talk a little bit more about the roots of that. I know as entrepreneurs and business owners out here, there's a lot of people that probably feel like, gosh, you know, I'm the oddball out. Like my family doesn't want me to do this. Uh, They want me to go get a job. They want me to go do something that's like secure. And I'm the crazy one doing this and trying to make it work. Like there's always this element of belonging, I think that goes with that. Can we dig into that a little bit more and and about Mm. that fear that maybe entrepreneurs, business owners have of being in that space? Yes. Well, I think you brought up something really important, which is actually for many people, the idea of sort of, or the perceived risk of like deciding, Hey, I'm going to run the show. Like, I I think I can build something. I have an idea. Um, And it actually feels so unapproachable 
um, that for many people, it would not be their preference. And as you point out, um, it often means that you are more in the minority when you're choosing to go do that, when you're choosing to step off an established path. And um, I can certainly say, so about 10 years ago, uh, this was after I had finished medical school, I had finished my PhD um, in immunology, and I was in my first year of a general surgery residency program at Stanford. So a very, let's just say, like, good party answer when people ask you, like, what do you do? And, uh, you know, and a really, like, solid pathway, um, you know, to have as a career with a lot of really interesting and good options in front of it. I can tell you that as I was realizing that that was not the right fit for me, there were some things that made it a good home and there were others that just weren't going to, weren't going to change and also like weren't going to fit. And so when I stepped off that very established pathway and said, uh, not only am I going to do something outside of medicine, but I'm going to do, I'm going to build my own thing. I think there were a lot of people who were kind of confused and, um, also, also, I think some doubters of like, well, what makes you think you can go do that other thing, um, right. which is really different from what you were doing. And so right. uh, I think um, that that belonging thing is a real question. And any, anyone who's feeling that in the audience, like <laughs> that's, that's the real deal. Um, but I think there are also some things that are really incredible when you start to build your own thing, um, when you can bring a vision to life that are part of the reward. And, and I would also say from a performance standpoint, uh, when we are willing to lean into the discomfort of getting outside an established system of really building it ourselves, um, you know, or with help, right. But to say, I'm going to kind of direct and lead this, that, um, we are actually developing a really important piece of, uh, sort of performance capability, which is the ability to deal with uncertainty and to kind of lean into that. So there are definitely some downsides. There are also, I think, tremendous benefits. Talk to me a little bit about making that decision from something that you had worked towards. I mean, getting a, a PhD is no small task. And so you know, working towards that, putting the time and effort in, and then making the choice to do something different that maybe you said the insecurity or, or not having that absolute, how do you make that choice? <laughs> I mean, there's just, it seems like such a heavy, heavy decision. Yeah. Well, I would say it was hard, but it was clear. And when I say it was clear, what I meant is, you know, in your first year of residency, you, um, I was probably in the first year of what could have been seven years. Wow. And then after that, you're like an attending surgeon. And so you, you're sort of fully certified at that point. But I guess one of the things that I've always had is the ability to like, look at what's happening socially and with other people. And, um, or maybe you could say, I can't ignore it. <laughs> and so like, I've always been very socially attuned, which may have, again, been a result of like some of those earlier life experiences, right. uh, not to bring everything back to sixth grade, but <laughs> I looked around, I looked around 
and I looked at the attendings, like I looked at the people who had made it and I was like, they don't seem particularly happy. And this is, this was in like 2010, this is, or like 2011, this is very, this pre pandemic, but I think, um, probably from looking at the news, uh, many of us are more aware now of just, um, how difficult the medical profession is, um, just how much burnout is there and how the changing system along with just, um, kind of the increasing burden on our healthcare system has made it a really challenging profession for a number of reasons. Now, I think it can also be a very satisfying um, profession, but I think one of the things I was noticing was it was a very like single focus kind of life. And so the kind of life where you could have one thing. And as I had been growing up and even like going through medical school in my PhD, one of the characteristics that I thought was normal, but I think is not normal at all was I had a lot of flexibility. So for example, I figured out that for medical school, I needed to read the syllabus because that's how I would learn, but that class was sort of optional. And so <laughs> it allowed me to use my time in really smart ways to do all the stuff I wanted to do. And like some of the things I wanted to do were, um, obviously like successfully complete medical school, but I also wanted to play sports. So I was like playing for this nationally ranked ultimate Frisbee team. And I wanted to go to the national tournament. Like when I got the opportunity to play, um, in a world beach ultimate Frisbee tournament, I was like, this is my dream. I'm going to go do it. And um, even in my PhD, my boss had been pretty hands-off, so I needed to deliver results and was very happy to pull an all-nighter if I needed to, but wasn't, you know, particularly on me if I was in the lab at 8 a.m. or, you know, how much time was I working. And this, I think, actually comes back a lot to entrepreneurship also, that I probably should have, like, cued in on the fact that I was a person who liked to use my time very well to figure out what were the most potent things that I needed to do to get the results that I wanted. But I wasn't overly, you know, about like showing up at everything. And, um, so I, I think, you know, getting into surgery, I was realizing rapidly that this was a much different kind of structure. And, um, you know, for me, once I see something, I can't unsee it. And I, I think it was over the course of that year that I really said, all right, well, uh, do you want to invest six more years in this and then decide, or do you know now? And if you know now you should finish this year, like don't leave anyone hanging, give them plenty of notice, but there's a, there's a good way to leave a position, but you should not stay any longer because the sleep costs, the health costs and the cost against getting on with your future. Right. Like, uh, and so, I mean, that was kind of, it was hard, but it was clear. It's my description. <laughs> nice. You know, you mentioned, oh gosh, I have like three questions. Okay. We'll get to one at a time, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm going to digress a little bit to something you said in that last piece and then go to the next one. So you talked about being happy. And I know that one of your specialties is working with CEOs and entrepreneurs and and senior leaders. How can a modern CEO these days go about defining what happy 
is because I know mm-hmm. it gets confusing as a CEO. You know, it's like you've got so much weight on your shoulders. You're running so many things. You've got, you know, I, I talked to a CEO today and, you know, they they very clearly indicated that, hey, if something goes wrong, it's always my fault because I should have done something to fix that. I should have made a process. I should have created something better. And I think that can easily fog our abilities to determine what happy is. So how how would you advise today's modern CEO how to define what happy was all about? Uh, you know, I think one of the first things I would say is I'm not sure happy is the word I'd use because I think it actually is really cognitively dissonant to what people are feeling. I also think happy isn't an all time state. And, and we, and I think if we chase happiness all the time, we rapidly realize that, Uh, that's kind of a fool's errand. And so I often look at a couple of other things. There's some other descriptors that I ask about. So like, I like to ask about, for example, when do you feel most engaged? And by engaged, I mean like kind of interested, um, sort of alive, um, are some different ways to kind of think about that. Uh, I also, um, often ask about sort of some of the, just the physical well-being things. Uh, for example, um, while I'm not a health coach, uh, I think we do our best work when we're not saying, oh, my mind is separate from my body and I can do whatever I want to my body and I'll still be a good CEO. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, so there are some very basic things around like, hey, sleep, um, some exercise, like eating, something, (laughs) preferably something like, you know, sort of healthy, but, um, but the other things, and then also this question about like kind of emotional well-being or just, um, kind of the outside of work, other responsibilities and other things that are really important to people. And so I often like to focus more on what are some, what, what does it look like to sort of feel successful at a couple of different things. So CEO is one of them. And, um, but also like, for example, like if they have a family, you know, what does that mean? What do, and, and there are often different parts of that because sometimes part of being successful for your family is providing for your family, but also some of it may be like, do you have some time to spend with them? Um, or are you able to show up for them in some other ways as well? Um, or friends, right? Having some, not being totally isolated. So what I'm trying to say is I think there's a complex cocktail of things that may not be a happiness recipe, but tend to contribute to a sense of well-being and um, of feeling like the work we're putting in, in all the realms of our life is actually um, turning an ROI for us. Sorry, not to be overly businessy in the language, but I think we want to feel successful at it. Right. Whether that's like being a, a mom or a dad, or whether that's like being a leader to your folks um, right. in your company. And I so that. I often like to get back to like, what does that mean to people? Um, and, and that's not to say like, I love it when people are like, hey, this thing just totally makes me happy whenever I do it. And, if, and, and so if we can incorporate that, like, absolutely. 
you know, <laughs> like, uh, it, why, why would we not? But I think that the chasing happiness um, is a hard one, particularly with the equation of what it means to be a CEO, which is often uh, like longer hours, not necessarily getting to just log off at 5 p.m. because it's 5 p.m. Like if there's something really going, like you got to work on that. So I would say that's a little more how I approach that question about happiness. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, you said something in there I want to touch on before I move to the, the next question. Uh, you said cognitive dissonance. And I know, you know, I have an extensive background in NLP. Uh, so I'm familiar with the term, but I, I can imagine out there that there's a whole lot of business owners that yes. that just went like right over their head and they were like, <laughs> cognitive, what, what are you Apologies talking about? for that. So and can we, can we dig into that real yes. quick and just talk about what totally. that is? Yeah. Um, and this, this it's even more broadly, this is a great topic because I, I would say cognitive dissonance is like sort of when our brain is in conflict with itself. And, um, so like, for example, if you're a CEO and you're like, well, well I need to be happy all the time, <laughs> like that, that could totally create some conflict. Cause honestly, like often you're the last person to shovel the stuff that needs to get shoveled like, right. and not cause you want to, but because you take responsibility, it's your company and you're like, this falls to me. This is part of the job. It's also why I get to be in charge, you know? And, but the idea of somehow I'm supposed to feel happy can create some real sort of conflict. Right. And I don't know is like a, a realistic way to think about it. So, um, so I think our brains don't like to be in conflict about things. Right. Uh, this is sometimes why, if we've sort of committed to something or said something, even when we realize it might not be fully correct, right. <laughs> we don't like to be wrong. And so we might stick with that viewpoint um, versus uh, having more openness to it. Yeah, I love that. That is great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, that's a perfect segue, I think, to my next question. In working and speaking with a number of business owners, talking to them about business and the ups and the downs and the challenges. One of the things I think you, you could probably help us with right now is that space that many owners and, and founders of their business get to, which is they got into it because they thought they loved it. They get into doing what the it is and they find a whole lot of it that they don't like. And then they start questioning themselves about doing it. And then they go into a spiral of, I hate doing this. I don't want to do it. But then when they try to leave doing it, they go, but I love it. And I have to go back. And now they're in this crazy cycle. Yes. What would you say to those, those entrepreneurs struggling with that, that very strange cycle of yes. loving it and hating it. And, and that it's, it's just that love hate relationship with <laughs> what they're doing. Yes. Well, first I would just say like, that's, that can be the nature of life and work. And I will tell <laughs> you people who are kind of working in a system are having that same thought, except what happens is they're thinking, Oh my gosh, I'm so tired of having a boss. I could totally go off and do this on my own. And then 
the moment like, you know, they start to kind of dabble in that and think about it, they get their monthly paycheck and they're like, gosh, it's so great to just get a monthly paycheck. Right. <laughs> so I just want to say it's normal to sort of have upsides and downsides or trade-offs in what you're choosing. And I like to use that word trade-off because if we have this idea that no one has trade-offs, then we're like, why do I have trade-offs? Uh, but we all have trade-offs. Um, and like, that's an important piece. And that then allows us to say, well, let's look at what I love about it. And the goal is probably that, you know, the upside or the things you love about it are, um, sort of that you can maximize that as much as you can. And again, you're not going to be able to do hundred percent of stuff you love. Like for example, sometimes when you're an entrepreneur, your favorite part is really the visioning and the building of something. Uh, and, but not necessarily the execution. That's like one flavor of entrepreneur I've talked to sure. who, would, who would say that themselves. This is not, you know, yeah. uh, me labeling them. <laughs> they, they, they said it. Um, and so the upside for them is the ability to get to be the person who does some of that visioning and sees the future. The downside is of course, to bring that vision to fruition. Yeah. There's a lot of nitty gritty stuff like scheduling meetings and having to go sell that to people and you know, <laughs> the list goes on. So what I like to say is there are some things that are always a part of the deal. Like in business, there's generally making stuff and selling stuff. And, um, you need to generally do both to be successful. Um, I think more often people fail to sell stuff. Like the making stuff is really exciting. The selling stuff, like less so, <laughs> um, but so there's some things you can't opt out of. So I often will say, all right, uh, first of all, let's really see all the stuff you love and let's be real clear on, on what you love and what would be the cost, like how much of that might you need to give up if you decided you're going to go back somewhere else. I think the second thing is to ask yourself, what of the stuff that you don't like as much is really critical, like mission critical. And for example, like generally speaking, you need to have some kind of sales pipeline or funnel. It looks different for different kinds of businesses um, that sell using different techniques and market using different techniques. But, um, so, but figure out like what is really mission critical and particularly the stuff you may still need to be involved in. Um, like until you get to be pretty big, often if you are the CEO or you are the, um, the leader, you will be involved in sales. Like it's not often something you can totally outsource, although that's not always true. Um, so figure out what you're going to have to figure out a way to deal with it. Like it's part of the game and being successful. And then look at the pile of the stuff that's left and say, some of that's going to have to happen. Do I need to do it? Could someone else do it? Could I automate it? Um, you know, and, and sort of say, listen, it doesn't have to be perfect. So is there, is there a compromise of how I could get some of that done? Could I get some help with it? Uh, so that, that's how I like to start to think about some of this stuff. And then really, um, I, when it comes to the stuff that you must do, but you don't like doing, I like to say, how could we make this more fun? Or how could we make this easy? And really start to carve out some dedicated practices and to create some mindsets around it where you know that like doing this stuff is good for me and that it's actually like creating a new skill set 
for example, learning how to sell. And, and I can use myself as an example. I mean, when I started my executive coaching practice, I didn't have a reputation in this industry. And I also was using some new methods and I didn't come from a coaching school that would sort of put me in their directory. Uh, I was really saying like saying, Hey, I have a great methodology. It's based on performance science, but I need to go tell people about it. So I can tell you, I had all the flubs and the like sort of pitches that didn't make sense that anyone can expect in your first, you know, hundred goes or even right. 200 goes. And, um, but as a result, 10 years down the line, um, all of that practice not only made me better at really just relationship-based sales, really building those relationships, getting to know people. Uh, but, um, also I think, uh, made me enjoy it. Right. So something I did not enjoy at first, I realized that when I took the time to get good at it, I, I enjoyed it much more and it felt much more like a conversation. Um, and so I, I think then that's the approach I like to take with that middle bucket of stuff where you're like, mm. <laughs> it's not my favorite, but it's really mission critical. Right. How can I learn to enjoy it or make it easy? Yeah. You talked about, and you, you, you led me right to where I wanted to go next, which is talking about the latest research from performance science and how you've brought that into what you do. And I think, again, just like cognitive dissonance, dissonance, there's this idea like, oh, yeah, research from performance science. What does that mean? <laughs> so maybe you can Absolutely. share with us a little bit more about what that means and, mm -hmm. and what type of research it is and, and what performance science is all about. Absolutely. So I think of performance science as more or less the multidisciplinary field of like everyone who's studying how as human beings are we good at things right. like how do we do produce our best results and it certainly has its roots in athletics so i i think the very early ideas were very much about physical performance obviously that did start to evolve um the idea of sports psychology is really based around this idea that like what our mind is doing while we're doing sort of physical performance actually matters quite a bit to our results um and then from there, it, it became clear that actually in business environments um, or non-athletic environments that how we were thinking, um, what were the thought processes or decision-making models that we were using um, could actually really benefit us outside of athletics. And of course, if you want to now give it a fourth chapter, I think it's really interesting to see how we're learning that how healthy our body is, so back to sort of the physical, really influences how well our mind is working. So in some ways we've sort of come full circle. Now, when I think about who is contributing to the field, it spans widely. So you've got the business schools talking about strategy and some of the and, and business models and all sorts of elements around um, what is the best way to think about a problem. Um, you certainly have uh, the fields of psychology saying, hey, how do our thoughts and feelings interact? How do mindsets come into play? And what does that have to do with our performance? Uh, and then certainly um, there's plenty of literature on execution. Uh, like how do we just do things well or effectively? And so you could look at the productivity movement as a big contributor to that. But I think execution of course goes beyond just um, sort of how to do more things in a day. In fact, I think often our performance is related to 
how can we do less things each day, but really pick the right ones. Right. Um, so when I think about performance science, because there is so much research and because it is just not feasible for a CEO who's busy trying to run their company to be like up to date on everything. And also the way research is structured, we have to study sort of a small thing and then try and build it up into a bigger picture. You know, like this is, for example, like, oh, if people eat blueberries for breakfast, you know, like does that, uh, you know, help their brains work better. Right. So for me, I really like to distill it and make it very accessible, both to my clients, but also to when I'm just talking about it. And so I think about three big buckets. I think one big area is all about strategy. And by that, I just mean how do we understand what are the most potent or most important focused inputs or actions or directions we could head that are going to have more impact than all the other things we could do? Like there might be plenty of good things to do, but what are actually the things that may have the most potent impact? So I think the second bucket is about that execution. So once you've figured out what you think you want to do, how do you execute on that most effectively or efficiently? And often that involves how do you do that through a team if you're trying to do that at scale. And then I think the third bucket that I think about is really that psychological piece and how do mindsets come into play and how do our thoughts and feelings affect our motivation, our confidence, and our ability to successfully do what we set out to do. And so I like to really break it down in that way because I don't think it, I'm not sure it actually helps an individual like to go into like all the individual studies, but to say, what are the common principles and why are they relevant or how might they apply to like the situation you're in? Right. Well, tell me more about if our listeners are are out there right now and they're thinking, gosh, you know, I, I, this is really connecting with me and I really would like to work with you. What, what does that look like? Because I know a lot of business owners are afraid of a lot of things, one of which is, of course, getting help. Uh, mm-hmm. But maybe secondly, and maybe this is primarily actually, uh, getting help on stuff that's not business because, you mm-hmm. know, there's nothing wrong with me. So I, I don't I don't need any help. You know, my marketing and prospecting that needs some help and my sales need some help, but I, I don't think I need any help. So, but they're, they're listening and they're going, man, I, I think I'd, this sounds good. And I, I want to connect with you and, and, oh, but I'm a little nervous about it. So what would it look like? What does, what it, does look it look like, like if like? somebody comes and works with you and, yeah. and gets involved mm-hmm. and, and wants to get some help? Well, one of the things I love about the way I coach and the way I structured my model is it is not based on fixing people. (laughs) So um, I really start, so when we talked about these buckets of performance science, what I have found is that one of the most important pieces of coaching, and so we start with this, is the ability to help a leader get clarity on what they want to have happen. So what are your goals? What does success look like? Um, and that can be both at work, but maybe also outside of work, uh, because of course those things are so, can be so, um, interconnected, but I think this idea of clarity about what you want 
and then also some clarity about what is most important to drive towards that. So we're squarely in this strategy bucket. And um, I have a term for this. We always start with brutal focus because <laughs> most people have way too much on their plates already. And so part of the thing is to say, how can we make the stuff you do more effective by giving it the space to breathe and really identify like, where is their effort that like, it's a good idea, but it's not actually as important as some of these other things. And I find that uh, particularly for leaders of a company that having some clarity about what matters most and some structure to put to what they're trying to do, again, getting to this brutal focus, like just takes this weight off. Um, and it also has a couple other surprising benefits. Um, and by the way, how we do this to start is um, I do a long onboarding session with people. It is five hours in length. And this wow. is actually pretty unique. Uh, this isn't typical, I think, for most coaches. Uh, sometimes people do assessments and things like that. But this is like uh, me and the client, like we're, we're just talking. It stays super energizing. I know it sounds epically long, but people repeatedly say at the end, that just flew by. And I think it's because it's a space where you can do really in-depth thinking about everything you've assumed about what needs to happen and what's most important. But you have a foil. You're not trying to sit in front of a pad of paper or a computer and, and do it on your own. Uh, my job is to kind of pull it out and to like find, just ask lots of questions. I really act like a scientist now bringing in kind of that continual thread from my background. I'm really curious. And part of the great side benefit of that is we really pull out some insights that weren't always apparent when you're just in your own head. And we get to that first level of clarity. Here are some of the other benefits of that clarity. So I like worked with a leader, um, and this is just a little story about him, but he was from the nonprofit sector and, uh, he went through this exercise of really figuring out what was the goal, what was really most important. And he then took that framework back to his team, showed it to them. And his team had this like aha moment of saying, oh, okay. Like that is clearly what you think is most important. I see where I fit in that. Like, oh, that priority up there, like that's all me. Like I'm in charge of that. So his team was both really motivated because I think they saw how they mattered back to the key priorities. They understood um, their roles. They all wanted to make their own frameworks <laughs> about like, okay, so for my priority, like what's really most important, can I focus it? And so what happened was because he had mental clarity, his communication came across to his team in a really different way. And this is true, whether it's your team of leaders under you, whether it's your board of directors, um, whether it's your investors, uh, it's, or your customers. And so that's how we start because I've just found that when you start with clarity, everything gets easier. Oh yeah. So Absolutely. that's part one. Part one. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, holy cow. I mean, this is this is a subject I literally could talk about all day long. Uh, as I said, I, I trained in NLP and and did that for years. Uh, still do, I guess. But um, but I love the topic. And at the same time, 
I think we should probably close up for today so that we can do this another time. But I appreciate so much uh, your willingness to share and, and give and share with us the insights that you've gained along the way. If somebody wanted to come and work with you, what's the best way for them to find you and get in touch? So a great place to learn more about my coaching is my website, and that is at thaxa.com, T-H-A-X-A. And um, you can just kind of read on the website. There's um, lots of podcasts listed up there. So if you just want to get a sense of my style, that's a great spot. And um, also you can message me through the site. And I often just set up an intro call because I think that's the easiest way to really get a sense of like, who someone who you are as a person and also um what coaching looks like and um so that's a good spot and um another place if you're just really interested in performance science and more conversations about this is linkedin is a great place to follow along as well um, and feel free if you want to connect just shoot me a message uh let me know how you heard about me and um and we can do that and so that's at carla-fowler awesome well i appreciate you so much and guys Go back, re-listen to this episode, take some notes, not if you're driving, please, and make sure that Safety you- Safety first. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but make sure you go back and, and pull out all the golden nuggets that were in here. Uh, there are some incredible things that I know are going to change the trajectory that you're on. So make sure you go back and do that again. And of course, if you're interested, go check out the website and see- what you can learn more about Carla and how she can help you. Carla, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Do you have any last words for us that uh, you want to leave our guests with? Oh, I, so I really like this idea of, we talked about brutal focus, but I really like this idea of relishing uncertainty because I think it, it just is at the heart of something you brought up, which is when we choose to be entrepreneurs, one of the things we're choosing is to say there is something good for us in the uncertainty that we're taking on. And I think yeah. it's so important to remember that, that there's engagement, there is growth, and, um, and also there is opportunity. I mean, when something is not yet discovered, that's why there's often value there or something really special, either personally or monetarily, uh, but that's often where the opportunity is. And so my last words would just be, you know, like lean into it, <laughs> relish that uncertainty. <laughs> I love it. Well, Carla, thank you so much for joining us today. And guys, all of you out there listening, keep choreographing your business, keep moving forward, doing great things. We'll see you guys on the next episode of the Business Choreography Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Want more business choreography? Check out our website at bizchoreo.com to find out more. And find out how the choreography for your marketing operations and sales can raise your revenue and create more impact. Remember, every business needs choreography.